0: Good evening, everyone. Uh, let me start by telling you a story about a girl called Rebecca uh, that I knew uh, up in Dundee. She and her husband uh, became Christians uh, within a month of each other. And it was almost like in... I-, I haven't even got it funny, but yeah. God. Uh, she and her husband become, became Christians practically within a month of each other and they were so eager. You know the kind of folks who when they first become Christians and just keep on going with enthusiasm for the gospel, they love reading the Bible and so on. The kind of people that put some Christians who've been Christians for a long time put them to shame. And they sang in the praise band together and they were eagerly involved in many different respects of the church's ministry and in some sense they were like almost like little trophies. There hadn't been many conversions for a while. And to have these two folks become Christians, you know, from their wayward background, come to faith, it was a precious thing. Uh, To see them renew their vows, uh, to have a Christian element to that, to affirm before God their love for each other, their devotion to his ways. To see them raise their two little children, two adorable boys. And to see their eagerness to teach them the truths of God's word and to talk openly about their desire to train them in the way that they should go. It was a fantastic thing to see. Uh, Rebecca's husband, Mark, had the kind of hunger for the Bible that puts us all to shame. Uh, It didn't matter what we were doing, whether we were just sitting having coffee somewhere or hanging about in their house, he would always have his Bible open in his lap and would hardly be engaging in the conversation with us, but he would be saying to us, Oh, have you read this? Did you hear this? And it it was thrilling. He had the kind of passion for God's word and desire to pass it on that, that that made it quite obvious that he was pretty much a candidate for going forward for ministry. And sure enough, he started to explore that. But just at the very same time that he started to explore this call to ministry and in serious conversation with a church, uh, Rebecca was working under a guy... At work, who kept flirting with her. And at first, it made her feel quite uncomfortable. She said she loved her husband, that she loved her family, she said she loved her savior internally, that is. But she said that she couldn't help but flirt back. And she just put it down to her outgoing personality. But here's the thing she thought that she could get away with it. She thought that she could do these little, in her view, harmless things, and that they wouldn't have any kind of considerable impact on her Christian walk or on her marriage or anything like that. It was harmless fun. But as time went on, the friendliness with this uh, guy at work increased to the point where even her colleagues that she had been witnessing to even commented on the relationship that was developing. So she decided to do something about it. She, she convinced herself. That she needed to tell this chap. Face to face. That the flirting needed to stop. But that day as she went into his office. To tell him that. Uh, something entirely destructive happened that day. That. That defamed the Lord Jesus Christ that caused a split in their marriage the disheartening of many many people in the church and despite numerous attempts to encourage towards repentance a complete rejection you see she had convinced herself that what she did that what she said even in this small area of her life in terms of the way she was interacting with men, would not really have any kind of impact on her Christian walk. She thought she was still pursuing holiness. But is that true? I mean, is it true that we can pursue holiness, attend church, do all of these things, yet at the same time almost flirt with sin? That even in a small area of life that we think that it might not really have any kind of impact on our lives. Is that true? Well, let's turn to Galatians chapter 6 and see. If you have a Bible with you, uh, turn to it. If If you're new to church, there should be a Bible in front of you. When we say a word like Galatians, it's the book. When we say chapter, it's the big number on the page. And when we say verse, it's the tiny little numbers that are very hard to see. So we're going to read from Galatians chapter 6, and I'm just going to read from verses 7 to 10. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Amen. This is God's word. So let me give you a reminder of the context in Galatians where we've been so far. Paul has been arguing that the blessings of the gospel are received by faith, by believing, not by doing. So by faith and not by works. And that these opponents of Paul who are worming their way into the churches in Galatia and diverting them from the path of the true gospel by saying things like this gospel that Paul is preaching, this gospel of free grace, is just a moral free-for-all. Who knows what it's going to look like? Paul is saying they're wrong. As well as that, Paul is saying that these people are free from the observance of the law in order to make themselves right with God. and But they are not to use this freedom for selfish Self indulgence, but to sacrificially love and serve other people. And in this section, we see Paul is just about to, in verse 11 and following, sign off this letter with his own handwriting, but he seems to revisit two main things that he's sought to drum home in chapters 5 and 6 that is, the pursuit of personal holiness and the pursuit of Christian helpfulness. So I have two main points this evening. First of all, be good. Second of all, do good. Quite simple. Paul really wants to, again, counter the false teaching that has come into the Galatian churches. But he also wants to motivate these Galatian Christians to pursue personal holiness. And to pursue a personal helpfulness within the body of Christ together. And he's eager to do that because actually what Paul believes is at stake is eternal salvation. It's either eternal life or eternal death. So how does he do this? How does he motivate them in being good? How does he motivate them in doing good? Well, I think he wants to get into their heads this picture of sowing and reaping to understand that actually our, con- our actions, every single one of them, have consequences so that Rebecca is wrong. The general principle for this is in verse 7. Look with me. A man reaps what he sows. Now, we're not farmers, uh, but the imagery is pretty clear. If a farmer wants a harvest, what must he do? Sow seed. Well done. If he doesn't sow seed, what will he reap? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. So if he wants, say, a harvest of, uh, to harvest a barley crop, what must he sow? barley seeds. You're getting the gist of this. The kind of harvest then that he will reap depends on the kind of seed that is sown. So if he wants a good barley crop, one that's free from impurity, what must he sow? Good barley seed. The quality of the harvest you see depends on the quality of the seed that is sown. And let's say he wants a bumper barley crop. What must he do? So I see you got confused because you can't say sow bumper barley seeds, can you? You can't say that. No, he has to sow lots and lots and lots of barley seeds. So the size of the crop depends on the quantity of the seed that it's sown. This is the principle that Paul's trying to work into their heads, and I hope we can work it into ours because the principle is clear: the kind of harvest that a farmer can expect is entirely related to the sowing of the seed, the kind of the seed, the quality of the seed, and the amount of the seed. What on earth has this got to do with a Christian life, you might be asking? Well, let's look at verses 7 and 8 and see how Paul applies this same principle to those who think that they can do what they want without it having any kind of impact on their hearts. So as we look at verses 7 and 8, this is point one, be good and reap a harvest of... Holiness. The Bible teaches us that before we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we are not free to do what we want, but enslaved, if you like, shackled, handcuffed to our sinful nature. But the Bible also teaches us that since Jesus died on the cross conquering Satan and sin, and rose again conquering death, so taking out our three enemies... He broke the power and dominion of sin in our lives and freed us from it. And at the same time, at that point of conversion, the Holy Spirit takes up residence in the hearts of believers. The only thing is here, the the sinful nature isn't quite evicted at this point, okay? Uh, The the Holy Spirit takes up residence in our hearts, but the flesh, the sinful nature, doesn't disappear. It doesn't, it no longer reigns, But it's not yet fully removed Anybody who's been a Christian for two weeks Or two hours even Will know what it's like Having been saved and converted to faith in Christ What it's like to actually hanker back For those old sinful ways But when faced with temptation The Bible teaches us that we can either choose to stand up under it With the help of the Holy Spirit Or that we can give into it To the pleasure of the sinful nature if you look back with me at Galatians chapter 5, verse 17, this is the kind of conflict that Paul has already been talking about. It's very much been in the news recently, hasn't it, about the, the, the civil war. They're now at the stage of civil war in Assyria. So two groups within the same nation fighting against each other. Well, what we have with the Holy Spirit and the sinful nature, as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, is a civil war of the soul. They're both in residence in the same place fighting against each other, conflicting desires, conflicting wants, the flesh, the sinful nature desiring self-indulgence and sin, everything that is contrary to the Holy Spirit and the things of God, and the Spirit desiring self-sacrifice and good, all the things that are entirely uh, contrary to the things of the sinful nature. the reason why this is important is that the more we are aware of this conflict, the better. This is why Paul teaches us this lesson. So effectively what he says to us is, you wondered what I was going to do with this, didn't you? Okay, that's soil. And this stand may not stand up for very long, so I'm going to do that. Okay, so basically what we have in this text are two fields. Okay, there are two fields and... It tells us that these fields are, let's say, this field is the Holy Spirit and this is the sinful nature. And into this field, we sow a certain kind of seed. Who's thinking about Rolf Harris at this present moment? Okay, so we can sow different kind of seed. Now, if we sow two the sinful nature, what does the Bible say that we're going to reap? Destruction. Death, basically. And that is contrary to what will we reap here. Okay? That's... That represents life tonight, okay? Uh, it doesn't normally, but it does tonight. So th- these are the images that I want us to have in our minds, that, that as, as Paul says here, the one who sows to please his sinful nature will from that nature reap death, destruction. And the one who sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap life, and life eternal so what does it mean to sow to please your sinful nature? What, is this, what might this seed actually look like in our lives? Well, a young unmarried couple sow to please the sinful nature when they get caught up in the passions of the moment behind closed doors and engage in sexual activity. That's sowing to the, the, the sinful nature. Or a man who dreams about getting a promotion can sow to the sinful nature when he starts to lie about other potential candidates in order to make himself look better. Or a woman can sow to the sinful nature when she, secretly despising another woman in the church, can start to spread gossip about her in order to defame her. Or a husband and wife who allow resentment to build in their marriage without ever resolving their differences, can sow to that sinful nature by refusing to forgive one another for past grievances. That's what that can look like. What kind of harvest do we expect to reap? Those who sow to the sinful nature from that nature reap destruction. So corruption takes place. It's a word that refers to decay not just in a spiritual sense in the Greek, but also even in a physical sense. It's almost like the kind of warning that you get on a cigarette packet. You know, smoking 40 a day for 40 years. You know, it's not going to have no impact on your life. Actually, it's going to have a serious impact on your heart, on your lungs, on your ability to exercise, all of these other things. And we understand what corruption's like. In a bodily sense, we understand what corruption and destruction look like in a, in a whole other sense. How many of us have ever, have ever had a corrupt hard drive and you've lost work? Oh, it's just me. It's, it's a sad, sad thing. You know, when, in computing, when a fi, even a file can become corrupt and you lose it or a hard drive being corrupt, even if it's one small corruption in the code or in a certain process that needs to take place, the whole thing can just be kaput. It's badly affected. I think that's what Paul has in mind here But I think by virtue of the fact that he goes on to contrast Sowing to the spirit with the reaping of eternal life I think he means In what is a very serious letter to the Galatians Where he has already described his astonishment That they are so quickly leaving and deserting the gospel that he has already shared with them That actually their continual diversion away from that gospel They're continued sowing seeds of the sinful nature. Though they declare that they are wanting to observe the law, that they are wanting to do good things and be good Christians, that in fact by the continual, repeated sowing of the sinful nature, they might in fact by the end demonstrate that they may have said, Lord, Lord, with their lips but never truly believed in their hearts. I think that's part of the warning that Paul is offering to these people in the churches in Galatia conversely the one who sows to please the spirit will reap eternal life and to please the spirit of God is to desire what he desires to work in us and to do in us and to desire the same things which is like Christ likeness it's holiness. We read earlier in Hebrews 12, didn't, didn't we? Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Peter reminds us of the Lord's call, be holy because I am holy. What do we see magnified in the New Testament as we're prepared for it, certainly through the Old Testament. We see it in the Gospels and hear it explained in Acts and the Epistles. The glory of Christ in all his holiness. What, what does that mean? His sinless Perfection. Never once sowing to please the sinful nature. Always and in every case, at every point, sowing to please the spirit of God. That's what qualified him to be our perfect sacrifice, of course. Without blemish, free from accusation. So much so that those who killed him had to lie about him in order to punish him and have him killed. We can sow to this spirit And reap eternal life. And we've already seen what life by the Spirit looks like for us in Galatians 5. Look back with me over the page to verse 22. The fruit of the Spirit is love. So we sow to the Spirit when we love, when we are joyous, when we are peaceable, when we are patient with people, kind towards people, good towards people. Demonstrating faithfulness in our character a gentleness in our spirit and self-control in our walk with God so the young unmarried couple that I mentioned before they sow to please the spirit when they choose to value the God-given gift of sex within marriage and work hard to protect each other's purity they care about one another's hearts before God The man who dreams about getting his promotion sows to please the spirit when he denies his own ambition in order to actually serve others and so maintain a godly integrity. Or the woman who sows to please the spirit when she openly confesses her sin to her sister in Christ and works hard to ensure that they are not only reconciled but that love can grow so there's nothing in there that could grow a weed and cause difficulty in there. And the husband and wife, so to please the Spirit when they repent of their pride, seek forgiveness from one another, and together seek counsel as they, uh, together seek counsel as to how they might strengthen their marriage, rather than corrupt it, and destroy it. We sow to the sinful nature, of course, primarily. Primarily. When we utilize those precious means of grace that God has set in place to actually cultivate holiness in us so reading your bible yes it's important do it every day not so that you'll be more favorable in God's sight but just because it's a means of grace that he is going to use to make you more like a son Listen to God's word preached. God has ordained the preaching of his word to grow the church and equip the saints for works of ministry. So attend when you have the chance and tell everybody else who's not here. Pray another means of grace that God has given us. Membership in a local church, belonging to a local church where you are where you are specifically and specially linking arms with fellow believers and saying I'm looking out for you are you looking out for me yeah I'm looking out for you I'll look out for you as well and you take one another on in the faith where one is slow you pull on sight where one is is pressing on you pull others with you so it's where membership is important what does Paul say to those who sow in those means of grace and who sow to please the spirit rather than the sinful nature? you will reap from the Spirit eternal life. Again, it's the Spirit's work in us. Now, don't misunderstand this. This is not saying that salvation comes by works or that it's by your own effort. This isn't some kind of scales mentality here. This isn't karma we're talking about at all. The whole letter of Galatians has been written to counter that and to blow that boat entirely out of the water. No, eternal life is a gift, as Paul has made clear, It is a gift that is received by believing, not doing. As C.H. Spurgeon has said, not that our salvation should be the effect of our works, but that our works, in other words, this sowing to please the Spirit should be the evidence of our salvation. And this eternal life, yes, again, in the same respect that this can refer to the now and to come, I think this refers to the now and to come also we will receive a glorious life eternal even as we were thinking about this morning where the old enemies are gone removed therefore making it possible for us to enjoy the banquet in the presence of God our great host to know that Satan's sin and death are finally gone that those tears can be fully wiped away and finally wiped away but we still enjoy this eternal life now at this point of conversion don't we we enjoy the benefits of the spirit of god living in us when i was a kid uh it was a highlight at a certain time of year uh, to go and pick brambles then by the burn and uh part of the highlight was, of course, that you got bramble jam at the end of it. Uh, We used to do this in St. Andrew's as well, where I used to live. And, you know, the strawberries up there are just out of this world, you know? Uh, uh, Yeah, I'm thinking about the strawberries. Uh, But the jam, wow. I mean, the jam, the jam was exquisite, both from the brambles and from the strawberries. But here's the thing, yeah, not every bramble and not every strawberry made it into that punnet, shall we say, you know And this is what eternal life is like in some sense You get to pick the best before they make it into the jam You get the taste of what is to come, don't you? It's the same in a Christian life When we see the Holy Spirit work patience in our hearts When perhaps a year ago we might have blown our top When we see the Holy Spirit work a self-control in us where a year ago we would have clicked that mouse, we'd have seen that image. We get the taste of the Holy Spirit's work in our lives in in so many ways, and it's it's a glorious thing that I think is underappreciated. We should be more thankful for the work of the Spirit in our lives as he helps us by his grace rescue us from this and lead us to this. So the question is what field will you sow in this week what field will you sow in later on tonight because actually we have just day after day week after week even minute after minute we have choices before us don't we where we have the opportunity or the desire to sin the opportunity to sow seeds to the sinful nature the opportunity to sow seeds to the holy spirit In what field will you sow? And will it be possible, might it be true that God's word to us today, warning us that a a man reaps what he sows, might just help us in this regard? Because the warning is clear. We're a very self deceived people. We can be unaware of the fight and unaware of the temptation at times. Paul says in verse 7 don't be deceived. If we think we can sow to our sinful nature that it doesn't have any impact on our walk with God or our pursuit of holiness, we're wrong. That if we think that the sinful things that we do today have no impact on our hearts or on our desires or don't serve to shape our mentality or mindset or anything, we're wrong. As John Stott says, on the contrary, what we become tomorrow depends largely on what field we sow in today. Now again, I would want to stress that what I'm not teaching here is some kind of deterministic principle. God's grace is such that we, in many respects, don't get what we do deserve. But Paul has already stated earlier in Galatians that God's grace is not to be abused and has no worries whatsoever in following up His reference to, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free by saying a man reaps what he sows. To help us in our daily walk. Understand that. And Paul says, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. It's so easy to deceive ourselves. But we cannot deceive him. We cannot outwit him. He knows everything. Sees everything. Knows our hearts. And if you're here tonight, you're not a Christian. I wonder how that sounds to you. Uh, the all-seeing Lord of heaven and earth is, is something that I remember from my non-Christian days. As I was thinking about this thing called Christianity, was something that made me kind of shrink back a little bit, thinking that's a bit. I don't really like that, you know. But actually, that's what it was like at the start of that exploratory stage of thinking through what's this Christian life all about by the time I got to the end point where I was ready to put my faith in Jesus the fact that God sees everything and knows everything about me was one of the most liberating and freeing things that I could ever think of you know all these things you see all these things and yet you still send your son to die for me therefore I can come freely knowing I'm going to get not a frown not looking over my head with indifference but an embrace I praise God for that and I hope you would too I hope that might be the thing that would actually encourage you to bring your sinful self which is what you are if I may be so bold into the light without fear of rejection and hear the words of him who said whoever comes to me I will never drive away I pray that might be you ultimately in here, as Paul says to the Galatians, be good. What is the harvest that he's seeking? A harvest of personal holiness. A harvest of personal righteousness, like we were looking at in Hebrews 12 again. That is one not just through sowing seeds, uh, sowing to the sinful nature, but even through God's discipline of us when we do this that a harvest of righteousness might be one for us growth in godliness isn't that what we're supposed to do aren't we supposed to do that isn't that what god's will is for our life oh i don't know what god's will is for my life i'll tell you what god's will is for your life it's in romans chapter eight for those god foreknew he also predestined to be what conformed to what to whom to the image of his son it's god's will for our lives Shall we not align ourselves with that and pray for God's help in that regard that we might be holy as he is holy, that we might grow by the empowerment of the Spirit with the enabling strength of the grace of Christ? What field will you sow in today? It's not just a personal harvest, though, that Paul has in mind for the Galatian Christians. There's a greater harvest to look forward to. And again, the extent of which depends on how they sow and what they sow. having encouraged them in verses 7 and 8 to be good, he encourages them in verses 9 and 10 to do good. And the farming analogy serves as well again. Farming is hard work, I think, just now. You know, you can picture Land Rovers and tractors and combine harvesters. That's the, the kind of imagery that we have, I think, of farming. But you still have the idea that farmers get up early. I mean, you know that to be true. They get up early. They work really hard and by the time they sit down for their evening meal at half six or something like that, they're exhausted. But imagine what it was like back then without the kind of machinery that they have now. Sure, they had oxen, other kind of animals to help, but it must have been really hard. Up early, working all day, again, exhausted by night time. But even back then, having to endure disappointments like droughts, frost, pests, What might a farmer be tempted to do as he works really hard? So sowing in terms of effort, but seeing little return. What might he be tempted to do? He might be tempted to give up. But we would say, farmer, that's really stupid. You know, don't do that. Day after day, you get up, you work hard, and why? Why should you keep on working hard? Why should you keep on getting up day after day after day and tending to your fields? Because you anticipate a harvest. You anticipate a harvest. And when it comes to this realm, not only of personal holiness, but personal helpfulness, of doing good to others, especially to those who belong to the household of faith, to the church, Paul is encouraging them to let this, even this sowing and reaping, this harvest harvest, uh, analogy encourage and motivate them to endure in doing good it'd be interesting wouldn't it to do a kind of audit of our lives i 'm sure they could invent an iPad app or something like that that could do this for us you know to show how much time you spend focused on yourself, how much time you spend say, doing good to others and so on. I'd be really interested to see what that would look like in your life and in my life, of course. I think it'd be a fascinating thing to see. I think like hardworking farmers maybe struggling with those disappointments like droughts and frosts and so on that we can, because of other things, be tempted to to not do good works and give up on those kind of things. What might make us want to stop doing these things? Well, busyness, which can just lead to tiredness. We need motivation to deal with that, don't we? Or perhaps thanklessness in the tasks that we do do. We we need motivation, don't we, to keep us going in that regard. Or especially when it comes to criticism. You know, when we do good things out of a desire just actually to do good, and yet we're still criticized for it, then then we need motivation in that regard. But look at verse 9. Let's not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not go up. Uh, Give up. Uh, Paul doesn't actually tell us what the harvest is here. But in keeping with the principle of reaping what you sow, what can you expect to harvest... If you sow good deeds, well, you can reap a harvest, a good harvest, can't you? As we sow good to all in general, do good to all, he says, we would wish to see surely a harvest of good in those who are struggling, perhaps those who are grieving, uh, to find a harvest of comfort for them. For those who are struggling financially, maybe a harvest of Of a financial relief for them for the the person with a a busy family life maybe a child who's disabled or something like that what happens when we sow good well we reap the harvest of and the benefits of assistance and help so the harvest is very practical in that regard. it reflects the good that we do and so we're encouraged to do it but i think The the harvest can even be anticipated on a wider scale, I would argue. I think even in terms of unity in the church and additions to the church. Because Paul's concern here is quite clearly for for God's people to do good to all. And I think from the understanding that these gospel works that we do out of a motivation to be like Christ and show forth, display Christ to all, will actually substantiate, reinforce, uh, bolster the very words that we declare with our mouths. So gospel works that reinforce our gospel words. They make the gospel visible and understandable. They don't replace the need for it. Uh, They create a thirst for it. Our generosity providing us with an opportunity to proclaim the the gospel, and that's very important. I know of a Christian organization who sought very hard to provide assistance and relief for those families in a certain area that that were quite impoverished, didn't even have enough money to give their kids breakfast in the morning and things like that. And they went seeking for funding in all sorts of different places and managed to find Support from local government and even from children in need but the difficulty was the difficulty was even as they sought to uphold a good Christian witness it was impossible for them because there were conditions that meant that they could not actually provide words of interpretation to the works that they were doing. That's not to negate the worthfulness of the worth of the works themselves. But still, they might as well have been good Muslims or good Jehovah's Witnesses or kind atheists. Gospel words are necessary. And gospel works are necessary. And Paul is trying to motivate them and us, I believe, through his work to see that by doing good to all, and particularly by doing good to one another within the fellowship of the local church, will be the very things that add to and reinforce our togetherness and our witness. In another letter, Paul says in Ephesians 2 verse 10, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Maybe you're thinking, how do we actually do good works? How do we do it? There seems like such a need. Do good to all, do good to everyone who's in the local church. That's, that's quite hard. There's a, there, are, there are a lot of needs. Well, it means everybody needs to pitch in, of course. But there are some principles in Scripture that help us in this respect, that we are to, I suppose even if you think of like concentric circles, primarily we are to do good to those who are closest to us. So Paul talks about those who reject and and fail to care for their own family in in, uh, one of the books to Timothy and condemns them as being worse than an unbeliever for not looking out for those who are closest to them. And then, of course, we could say that those in the next concentric circle, those who are least able to help themselves. The need is great, but the greatness of the need should not make us do nothing. It should make us pick something and do it to the glory of God. A new command I give you, Jesus said, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Do not be deceived. A man reaps what he sows. When it comes to personal holiness, how will you sow? Into which field will you sow this week and in the days ahead? And when it comes to personal goodness, what harvest are you seeking? Let's pray together. Our Father, I pray that you would help each and every one of us by your Holy Spirit to sow to please the Spirit. And so reap a harvest of personal holiness. And that as we seek to do good, let us not do so sparingly because of our weariness, and so reap shallow relationships and a poor witness for you. But let us do abundantly good works, anticipating the harvest of a, of a greater togetherness in our church. And an amplified witness to the world. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to st-